Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Everybody, it is House of Strauss. I have actually changed up my intro because my producer tells me that I've been copying somebody else, which that will be fitting for the conversation that we are about to have with one Freddie DeBoer, the great substacker, multiple time author, um, and somebody who's been a great friend of this show. We are delighted to have you here. How you doing? I'm good, Ethan. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to have you as i have already said you've been writing things that are just completely in my wheelhouse of interest and in the interest of the podcast in general um specifically recently on the collapse of hollywood which is a topic that we get into a lot and mimetic collapse itself uh this strange era that we're living in this panopticon where we can all see each other all at once and how it's leading to certain inauthentic broadcasting of taste. And then in addition to that, we can actually talk some sports. But uh, let's start with the, uh, the the collapse of Hollywood. You had a fascinating, a fascinating post about this um, where you were coming to some perhaps unpopular conclusions regarding <clears throat> that we might have to pony up and pay for the uh, entertainment that we want. But, you know, before we get into that, what is driving Hollywood's collapse? What's going on? You know, one of my um, most dedicated readers, uh, somebody who's been following me and communicating for a long time, is a woman who um, <clears throat> is, uh, she makes a very good living by self-publishing uh, genre fiction, fantasy genre fiction to ebook. Um, <clears throat> and uh, is in that whole world and, uh, you know, that's been able to be her profession, but she says it's getting harder and harder because of the Amazon's Kindle Unlimited plan, which allows you to borrow or whatever a certain number of books um, for, uh, I think it's $12 a month or whatever. Um, and she says it's not unusual uh, for the kind of readers and the kinds of books she's talking about. Some people read upwards of like 20 books a month. Um, uh, in this sort of milieu and on the, the Kindle Unlimited plan. Now, Kindle Unlimited does compensate authors, uh, although I believe not as well as if they were just getting all those sales, but they are compensating authors. The problem is that she said that it's trained a generation of these readers to have an artificially low conception of how much a book should cost. And so mm. when she makes appeals to people and says, you know, I'm going to move my work off of, off of Kindle Unlimited because I can't afford to keep offering it there. And they say, I, I can't afford a regular book. I, I read 20 books uh, a, a month. And, you know, and I think $12 is a fair price for that, which means that they're pricing the individual books at 60 cents a piece. Right. Um, and her whole point is like this practice, like what Amazon has done is for a lot of consumers has trained them to think of the product as being you know worth less than uh, is sustainable. Uh, this is also, mm -hmm. also obviously what happened with uh, music and MP3s and listening to things on YouTube. Once people began to be able to access music for free, uh, it became ingrained in them that paying for music ever 
kind of just is like a chunk move. Um, and I think that this is also happening with the streaming services and with Netflix and with Hollywood right now, which is that, um, you know, Netflix has raised its prices, but I still think like the average plan is something like 12 or $13 a month for which you get access to thousands of movies and shows. Um, whereas a single movie ticket now in most places costs between 10 and $15 um, at, a, at a theater. And so what you're doing is when you're putting all this stuff on, on streaming and you're charging so little for it, you're inherently devaluing in the customer's eyes your product, right? You're convincing them that your product is worth less than it would actually be sustainable to make it. And, you know, these companies are finally grasping that. I mean, the first thing that they did was to start their own streaming services. But you still have the same fundamental problem, right? Where, I mean, Disney Plus, I think, is the most expensive one. And it costs $20 a month now. And some people Mm -hmm. see that as ridiculous. But they, you know, 20 years ago, they would have bought a $20 DVD for their kid of one movie without even thinking about it, right? And that's what I'm talking about, right? It's, It's an unsustainable association of your product with low prices that then sets a <clears throat> price expectation for a generation of moviegoers. Yeah, and it, it definitely seems to be the tech playbook. You mentioned in your post that tech seems to play by different rules and it's growth It's growth at all costs. And the reason why growth at all costs is encouraged, it seems to be it's, it's the plausible expectation of a monopolistic level of control, at which point you can jack up the prices later on. But what you end up getting is everybody's going for that at the same time, creating a bottleneck where, at least in the case of Hollywood, it seems like Netflix is left standing, but everybody else is totally bleeding out after they've devalued themselves and devalued the art in general. And it's hard to argue that we are at a high point. And I, I, I was going to put it to you that maybe we're just nostalgists and maybe we just think things are worse and they were actually worse when you had to trundle around a blockbuster and people gave it all up when they had the first opportunity to do so. But I'm not even going to play that game, Freddie, because I just think it's it's just not true. Like, this is not good. Wherever we're at is not good, even if um, perhaps in theory it's good that we've got this buffet of the entire Disney canon for whatever it costs. It does seem like there is a level of anticipation <laughs> And also just cherishing. I know I sound precious when I say it, but cherishing what's out there. It does feel like we're all the worse for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, like uh, <clears throat> if we wanted to get really broad here, I think that the uh, there's no reason to believe that 21st century capitalism has the ability to deliver wage growth. Right. I mean, we're finally seeing in the last year or two um, real wage growth in the overall economy but it's uh, hyper-concentrated in the absolute bottom end of the economy so that the lowest wage workers are making more money. That's obviously absolutely a very good thing, but, you know, I'm 42 years old, and um, in uh, real terms, in real wage terms, um, uh, you know, worker wages have essentially not grown in my entire lifetime, right? Uh, And so we are already existing in this system where, uh, there is just more and more and more sort of uh, technological means to eliminate labor and to undercut labor. 
that absolutely happened in media, obviously, right? Where <clears throat> you have Google and Facebook uh, for a while when it was profitable for them, made a ton of money off of being the services that were sort of sharing what media was producing. Media was basically doing it for them for free. The idea of cutting media companies in on that <clears throat> was seen as laughable by Facebook and Google. <clears throat> and eventually, the sort of model collapsed and you've had dozens and dozens of local newspapers out there which have, which have shuttered. Um, and <clears throat> this sort of Netflix thing is the same sort of deal where Netflix is a third-party intermediary, right? I mean, yes, they are effectively a movie and TV studio now too because they make their own stuff. But fundamentally, they're saying, okay, we're going to take what you make. We're going to offer it at a below market value, which reduces the perceived value of what you're selling. Uh, and also, uh, we are going to cut a bunch of shareholders into it. So uh, there's, you know, this sort of profit eventually has to come from somewhere. Uh, what has enabled all sorts of tech companies for a long time was uh, you know, rock bottom interest rates that we had in uh, the economy pretty much from 2008, 2009 through to 2021, um, mm -hmm. which sort of created the uh, this situation where, number one, these companies could borrow incredibly cheaply, um, where, you know, essentially borrowing money was essentially free. So there was just no particular need to be immediately profitable to cover any of your uh, of your debts. Uh, but also where when when uh, interest rates are that low, there is a inability to find conventional uh, investment opportunities that offer a good return, right? It's like, I mean, I have a, a uh, uh, regular savings account that I think I opened in 2011, right? Which earns essentially zero interest. Um, and that is just the norm for me because that's what I'm used to as an adult. That would have been crazy, you know, 25 years ago. Um, what that means is that, like, you're not going to stick your money in a CD when the basal interest rate is like, you know, two percent or whatever it's been, because there's you're just you're not going to make any money, and inflation is going to eat all of it. And what that ends up doing is that it compels people to push more and more money into riskier investments. And so, if you're a tech firm uh, or any kind of firm, like we work, you know, which was a you know a, a horrific failure of a company. But um, it looked like a hot stock that could potentially become a huge profitable thing. People were throwing money at you because they just didn't have anywhere else to put their money. Um, and so, again, if you're Netflix, you don't care at all about the fact that you are not making money. You certainly don't care about the fact that you're, you know, you, that you're creating an expectation among uh, consumers that they can get as much as they want for you know eight dollars a month or whatever it was at first. Um, all you want is growth because growth is the number that uh, Wall Street is going to reward. And so it just creates an inherent situation where your interests are directly contrary to those of Hollywood. And I don't think it was mm. until just recently in these strikes that Hollywood sort of woke up to the fact that this is actually really bad for us. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is. I don't know what their solution is to it necessarily. It does... From the outside, not having an intimate knowledge of what is being discussed in the strike, it almost feels like arguing over how to divvy up a diminishing pie. And when I talk to people um, on the writer's side, there is this feeling of, well, 
business guy figure it out you know you're supposed to be the one to figure it out and you we feel like you're just kind of chopping us up uh you know like you're in private equity to sell off for parts and you're not actually figuring out a path forward um i can sympathize with that but that doesn't actually solve what's what's happening um yeah i'm, I'm thinking about if we are being nostalgists but I will say one of the reasons why I don't is that I don't have a recollection back then when DVDs were king and were printing money for the industry. And you had that clip of Matt Damon talking about it and how the DVD sales would subsidize all these mid-budget movies. You know, the sort of Kevin Smith movies that uh, that Matt Damon might be in, right? Mm. Um, and I don't recall back then people talking about how exorbitant it all was. I, I don't. Maybe I missed it. Maybe I was a kid, so I didn't have a realistic conception of money but it did seem to be working out better than whatever this is and i have to say currently maybe this dovetails with some of your critiques of poptimism but i do think we're seeing a lot of industries struggle absent the people critiquing them being honest about the struggles the the level of tv right now is not good it's not just a writer strike thing I, i know that's a confounder but you know, I look at HBO. I, I saw there was a, a CNBC article talking about how great HBO was and it survived these mergers and, you know, it's actually, you know, better than ever. No, it's not. No, it's not. They're not making anything like The Sopranos. I think White Lotus is good. Um, I thought Succession was good. It's not on the air anymore. Uh, whatever the knockoff or sequel was for Game of Thrones was terrible. Uh, Game of Thrones ended in a not great way. Uh, it does seem like we're watching an artistic nadir, um, which that wasn't, you know, necessarily the focus of your piece. But I'm wondering if you see it similarly, or maybe you're a bit more positive on the artistic product of this economic collapse. I mean, look, like, uh, look at the at the at the model, right? That that previously existed. Okay, so let's let's talk about publishing again, like media again. Right. So one of the big the reasons that media and journalism were threatened is because of what, you know, people call unbundling, which is, you know, your, your audience might not be aware of this actual journalism. Right. Like sending reporters out into the field to gather information is very expensive and it's never been a great moneymaker. Right. Uh, in other words, uh, the stories where, you know, <clears throat> the local paper investigates corruption at City Hall or the, when the New York Times sends people to Libya to investigate the slate of trade there, right? Um, <clears throat> those are actually not big gets in terms of, or, or big, big number generators in terms of uh, the number of people who want to read them. Um, <clears throat> but they've always been subsidized before by, by the other things that a newspaper does, right? The biggest of these was the classifieds. Uh, <clears throat> classified ads were the backbone of uh, local newspapers' uh, financial uh, uh, situation. Uh, many times they were essentially printing and distributing the papers at you know, close to cost. I mean, they were making you know, very slim margins on there. But they would make it up in terms of advertising and particularly in classified ads. Uh, Craigslist comes along and eliminates that and kills a lot of papers in doing so. But even if you look at like, the New York Times, uh, <clears throat> The, the sort of the function of like, you know, again, putting, you know, putting uh, reporters in Libya or Syria or wherever is very expensive. 
Um, <clears throat> you're never going to earn that out just by in terms of like the ad clicks or the ad views uh, for that are attached to that story. You're only ever going to be able to do that if you subsidize it with stuff that's cheaper. And traditionally, that's been the crossword puzzle. It's been uh, cartoons. Uh, it's been op-ed writers, right? Opinion writers who sit at a desk. So, you know, even if you pay them well, they don't. it doesn't cost that much to produce them. Um, <clears throat> that's unbundling. And the same thing has sort of happened with cable, right? Which is that as much as everyone used to sort of complain about paying for cable channels that they never uh, <clears throat> watched, that system was necessary to keep uh, these TV channels afloat. So uh, you would buy your cable package and the uh, cable company or your Comcast or whoever would pay the individual channels a particular carriage fee for how much you know they're charging to be on your cable system. The, you know, whoever had the most leverage and was seen as the most essential could charge the most, which famously was always ESPN. I think at, at one time ESPN was charging twice the carriage fee of the next closest competitor. Um, and then on top of that, uh, these channels would run ads, which depending on the individual situation, some of that revenue would be split with the cable company, depending. Um, think about like how that model could possibly work now, right? Mm. There is, you can like, you can have Amazon Prime's video app and you can subscribe to HBO Max through the app. Uh, <clears throat> typically in that scenario, uh, you know, Amazon would get a little bit of the money and they would, t- they would take a little bit of a fig, but not much. Um, <clears throat> although I'm sure it depends on the individual deals. Um, but it's not a traditional sort of carriage fee. Um, the, most of the, of the revenue is sort of peer to peer between the individual and HBO max, but also if Netflix starts to, you know, decides to start running ads as it has already done and is now trying to make the ad tier, like the default tier, um, there's no constitutive sort of channels within Netflix that it's paying that money towards. Right. So if you were TNT and you had original programming, um, then that original programming had advertisements. You got most of the ad revenue, some of which you might share with the, with the cable company, depending on the deal. Um, uh, if Netflix has this big ad tier, right, that ad money is going to Netflix. There's no channels within it, which means that like you just, you, you're concentrating more and more of the money in the hands of fewer and fewer uh, people. And again, mm-hmm. it's an, it's an organization. It's an institution that has every reason to, uh, prioritize growth over revenue. I mean, it's finally raising prices again. But if, but if you just look at sort of like the whole pot of money from a Netflix subscription and you compare it to the to the pot of money from an individual that is like, that has cable and is subscribed to HBO, um, <clears throat> you know, the individual might be paying, you know, might have paid $120 a month for cable and HBO, right? Now that person is paying $15 a month for Netflix. At some point, like that math just doesn't work. Um, And so, you know, there's been too many TV shows the last few years. Um, You know, people talked about it, called it peak TV. Because again, these people were trying to break into streaming and Apple and Amazon and Hulu and Disney Plus and Paramount Plus and Peacock. They all wanted to, you know, make a splash with an essential show. So they threw a ton of money at, at shows. Um, but the overall net loss 
from all those shows was very high, right? This was an attempt yeah. to sort of, these were lost leaders that you were trying to sort of get people into the ecosystem. Now that's sort of drying up. I mean, I hope that that results in people putting resources where they belong. But fundamentally, right, like going from the average person paying $120 a month for cable to paying maybe $35 a month for Netflix and Disney Plus is just sucking a lot of money out of the system. And there's just yeah. a non-negotiable sense in which that's just going to shrink college. Yeah. I mean, this might be a facile analogy, but it's like you enjoy the city's food festival. It's really cool that there's the food festival and there are all these different trucks and that creates a certain atmosphere. And I could say, hey, we're all pitching in for it, but I don't want to pitch in for uh, I don't want to pitch in for the Middle Eastern kebab. I'm not into that. That's not what I would like. And I, I don't think I should really pitch in for the seafood truck. I don't really eat seafood. And it all sounds wonderful if we're able to just completely select whatever it is we want. But then the collective experience is completely is completely stripped bare, and we don't have this um, this sense of kind of a community, and that there's something on Comedy Central um, that's sort of popping and is interesting culturally. And uh, we're we're where we're at right now, which is this odd uh, money drain and and siloing and everything else. But I would I would put this to you because I have this kind of argument back and forth with my friend. Uh, he's a comedy writer named Matt Kleinman, and he's a bit of a tech critic. He went viral criticizing Facebook. And he is more inclined to lean on the structural reason for the arts collapsing. And we joke about it. It's like wokeness versus brokenness as to what the reason is for the collapse. I'm a little more inclined to give the the knucklehead perspective, the unfashionable perspective that, yes, there is a bit of wokeness here that's part of it that, you know, why did American movies get big back in the day? I'm sure they were significant structural advantages, but there was also balls and brains and vision that captured hearts and minds and connected. And that if your art is ideological and it's everybody watching everybody else and it doesn't risk anything, it doesn't say things that are true, then it won't connect do you think that's part of the economic collapse or do you just see it purely as a function of the economic situation we're talking about? I mean, look, um, <clears throat> Oppenheimer is a three hour partially black and white biopic and it made a billion dollars at the, at the box office. Right. Um, it, it, I think it quadrupled an Ant-Man, an MCU movies, domestic, mm -hmm. uh, take or something like that. Um, <clears throat> there's still an, an appetite for, for sort of what Hollywood is putting out there. Um, you know, I don't know if it's a sort of Netflix advantage can be unwound now. Uh, but certainly, uh, you know, if you look at Disney, they have, you know, there's, they're widely rumored to be uh, considering moving off of ESPN, which, yeah. uh, you know, is in, if declining position because of the of the death of the of the cable bundle, right? Um, which is interesting because sports remain as popular as ever. Uh, they remain at the center of the sports media universe. Uh, the problem is, is people a lot of people consume ESPN by like watching the clips on on, on Twitter or YouTube, right? Um, but you know, Disney wants to get back, I guess, to their sort of core business. But fundamentally, right, like. Um, 
it's not a, it's not a question of them not being able to sort of summon uh, <clears throat> like the best talent, which they obviously can do. Um, they are particularly in in, a, in trouble because um, both the MCU and Star Wars have badly underperformed in the last couple of years in terms of getting return on their massive investment in those things. But uh, fundamentally, it's you know, can the sort of cinematic experience survive, right? Uh, it, you know, there's a lot of efforts uh, being made to improve the movie theater experience and to make it less replicable in, in the home, which they're already doing with IMAX and with very fancy um, uh, sound systems and things like that. But if, you know, if, even if not, right, like, can you, can you survive in a scenario where, you know, $15 is what they'll pay in the theater, but it's considered extortionate if you're sort of renting the, the movie at home, right? Like mm -hmm. I, most of the movies that I rent um, at home, I'm renting for like $5, right? Um, yeah. <clears throat> which is, uh, you know, what I would have paid in, like, to rent a movie from Blockbuster in 1996, right? Like, so like, if you just like, like sort of do that math out again, um, I don't, I don't think that it's fundamentally like, this stuff is too woke or people don't really like what's getting put out in like a sense that like this has to happen now. I, I don't think human creativity has fallen off that much. I think there is an exhaustion with the current wave of franchises that mm. uh, Hollywood bit so hard on existing IP. Uh, they flooded streaming services with shows that were reboots of old things, right? They put out terrible movies like the craft reboot or whatever, which yes, was very woke, but it was also like, just like a boring retread of a much better old movie. Like, I think there, there has to be a sort of a pursuit of new, like, uh, <clears throat> ways to sort of go about trying to find something that really, really pops. that's not franchise bait or nostalgia. But do I think that like, we have a problem with people just aren't as creative anymore? No, I don't. I think that there's just um, structural issues like we've talked about and also, uh, <clears throat> you know, the really unfortunate for the studios end of sort of like the MCU, right? Which is, mm. I mean, it could always come back, but the new Marvel's, you know, movie that's coming out in a couple of weeks is tracking to open at half of what Captain Marvel did. And like, that's just like the way things have been going in that universe. Yeah, I'm with you that the bigger problem is that they've bled dry this IP. They've just spammed the same play over and over again, and people do get wise to it. They do get bored with it. I I probably index a little more towards the ideological the ideological issue. I think they could really surprise some people if they could go to territory that they're scared to go to and could get unseen returns from it. But who knows, unless they actually do it, it's hard for me to actually know if I'm correct. Uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room, which is, I'm sure you've gotten this feedback from people. I certainly have. We charge for our content. We mm -hmm. are on Substack. We are part of, a, of an unbundling, as it were. And people will sometimes say, hey, I want the ability to pay for all of you guys in a bundle because this is really adding up for me because I want to read this writer. I want to read that writer. Um, how do you feel about our whole economic model in Substack given the various economic constraints people are under these days? I mean, look, like I, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't think that I can be accused of contributing to the great unbundling because I don't think I would have gotten a staff writer job anywhere if I tried. Right. Hmm. Like, I mean, yeah. I, I don't think that people can accuse me of that if like there wasn't any opportunity for me. 
I've also never been a staff writer anywhere. Um, <clears throat> I still freelance for places, including. I could, see, I could see you as a as a New York Times op-ed columnist. That yes, they but, would, but the problem is, is the New York Times could not see me as a New York Times op-ed columnist. <laughs> a minor, the, minor a, hurdle. A minor hurdle. Yeah. So um, look. Um, the, uh, speaking of the New York Times, right? Um, they're doing fantastically well right now, right? Like they, they are, they have, um, they rode the, the Trump wave to sort of um, uh, a sort of pole position in terms of the subscription game. Uh, but they also have proved that now, you know, uh, two years plus into the uh, uh, two and a half years, almost three years, into the Biden administration, they've proven that they don't need Trump to be in office to continue to move subscriptions. Uh, they've made some high-profile acquisitions like it's the Athletic and Wirecutter and Wordle, you know. Uh, the problem is, is that, like, <clears throat> you know, the New York Times is, uh, you know, one of one. and always has yeah. been. Um, it, they, you know, they can acquire talent uh, very easily. Uh, I don't think I'm, you know, telling, telling tales here that... Um, Although some people are paid very well by the uh, New York Times, including, you know, in cases where it doesn't make any sense, like David Brooks. Um, uh, in general, the New York Times is known to underpay a lot of people relative to their prominence and relative to their traffic, right? Because they know that they can. Right? Yeah. Because being, working for the New York Times has all kinds of cultural and social cachet. If you go on a Tinder date and they ask what you do and you, th you say, I work for the New York Times, it's like, oh. Um, mm -hmm. Also, um, you know, being a staff writer for the New York Times can get you an agent or a book deal, which is not true pretty much anywhere else. I mean, maybe the New Yorker, right? So you sort of you have that advantage. Um, and, you know, essentially all the work that was once performed by many other publications have been sort of sucked up into the New York Times, right? Um, so they're doing fine, right? They have plenty of op-ed people also still. And, you know, their bundling is like literally The Athletic or Wirecutter or Wordle or, you know, The Crossword, which is, you know, a huge uh, draw that <clears throat> I think like three people, you know, write the, write the crossword. So it's not very expensive. But in the broader scheme of things, it's like, look, um, you know, even if I could go out and get a job somewhere, uh, the kind of stuff I like to write is not the kind of stuff they would pay me for, you know? Mm. Like, for me personally, I just prefer independence and freedom to write whatever I want. Um, so that, as I did a year or two ago, I can write a 15,000-word review of the Babysitter's Club book Um and like, that's just a thing I can just choose to do. Right. Yeah. Um, it, you know, even after all these years, after like the blogging revolution or whatever, which is now totally dead. Right. I mean, like, uh, everybody has been absorbed back up into the Borg of, uh, establishment media, or, uh, they are sort of toiling away like I am in a, on a newsletter that pays me very well. And that I'm very happy to have, but where I have no ability to break through to a bigger audience when I really want to, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, the, the, the sort of blogging revolution of total freedom for writers was never something that was going to be a, a sort of, uh, you know, absorbed by, you know, stodgy old school traditional media even today. And so 
you know, journalism, I just don't know how it can survive on a pure profit model in the uh, 21st century, right? Like, I mean, uh, <clears throat> the ability to share things for free uh, <clears throat> uh, and, you know, the fact that the marginal cost of a million people reading your work is the same as the marginal cost of a thousand people reading your work, right? Which is great for publicity, but not bad, but not very good when, <clears throat> you know, you're trying to make a... Uh, financial argument for why you should pay for what people should pay mm. for what you make. Um, I just don't, it just doesn't appear to be sustainable. And so you have like, I think that the Cincinnati Inquirer is like six pages now or something like that. I, I could be thinking of the wrong paper, but um, you have just total collapse of local newspapers, which is, tor- which is terrible. You have the New York Times, which is doing great and has sort of functionally become the town square of media with the death of media Twitter. Um you know, with media Twitter gone, uh, you know, media Twitter had a lot of bad parts, but it also had the ability to surface stories and sort of start a, a national conversation about things. With that gone, if you want a piece that you know people are going to see and read and care about, you put it in the New York Times, right? So they have that value. The Washington Post is barely hanging on and it's owned by a billionaire who might get tired of it soon. I mean, they're losing yeah. money. Uh, you know, I always hear that the New Yorker is doing worse financially than you might think. And certainly Condé Nast is in a precarious position. Um, <clears throat> the Atlantic does okay, but again, it's owned by a billionaire. So, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, all of the sort of functioning things at the top, uh, are, you know, either barely functioning or they're working under the largesse of someone who a capricious billionaire who could change their mind. And then the models that work, I think are things like the ringer, which I've written about before about, you know, I think that they work and I think that they know what they're doing, but like they have a very sort of a narrow Avenue and, you know, they subsidize, you know, a few good things with the production of just a mountain of pop culture slop, right? Like, just like, you know, I think they have like four fucking podcasts about the MCU uh, but that's what you have to do, right? Like there's there's sort of like a uh, <clears throat> churning in the salt mines of content of, you know, very specific pop culture stories about Taylor Swift or about the Marvel Universe or whatever. Um, and then that sort of subsidized their ability to publish, you know, occasionally more, more interesting things. But that's also like, that's all analysis, right? Like um, The Ringer will sometimes publish reported pieces, but they don't have reporters whose job it is really to go out and just be writing reported pieces and be doing sort of, you know, independent journalism. So of course their costs are lower. Yeah. I, I, I'm fascinated by just how much the setting of a price sets expectations and how long that endures. Mm -hmm. And that was a big decision when I had to set my prices, when I opened up shop and I talked about it with friends who would run sub, you know, successful subscription model ventures. And one of the things I was told is that writers who are successful underprice, I think we do have a little bit of pick meism to us, and it's hard to fight against that. Plus, if you talk to the people at Substack, they're probably more inclined to want you to make it cheaper because they want to grow and they want mm-hmm. as big an audience as possible. But it's just fascinating to me that entire industries can render themselves valueless in the eyes of the public by making their product available to the public. And that is something that we're seeing again and again and again. And it's just, maybe it all makes sense. And maybe I'm just inordinately fascinated by something that's rather intuitive. 
But it's funny to me how many people are aghast at just the idea in general of paying for something that they enjoy. If -hmm. somebody says to me, hey, I don't want to pay for your content. Yeah, okay. That makes sense. Hey, different strokes for different folks. You know, maybe I need to make better content or maybe you're not the kind of person who is one of my customers, but that is between you and your wallet. It is not for me to speak on. But there are a lot of people who just seem to have that reaction to anything made by anyone. And it's so odd to me because as my friend Spike Eskin has pointed out, what is more valuable to you than your time? Your your time is pretty valuable. In theory, you should be paying for something that you enjoy. I, I just, I don't even have a question for you, Freddie, other than that. It's so odd to me to have reached this point where we've engendered <clears throat> such a sense, kind of this uh, antagonism towards paying for the things you enjoy most, yet here we are. Well, that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? And that was why, <clears throat> I mean, um, I was never particularly... Uh, fond of like the sort of pro piracy arguments, you know, people who thought they were sticking it to the man. I mean, the ones that I always respected the most were people who were into torrenting or the ones who were just like, yeah, I just want stuff for free. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I respect that because it's honest. Um, but this, you know, this is exactly what happened to music. I mean, it's incredible the number of people who want to deny that this is true, but, um, uh, in, I think in two, in 2000 music was a, uh, a $20 billion industry. And five years later it was a $7 billion industry. Right. And, you know, people hear that and they say, oh, yeah, the record companies, they you know, got what's coming to them or, you know, these these big time rock stars, they don't they don't make money anymore. Um, actually, the people who were really hurt was the musical middle class, like the, the people who really got screwed um, were like session musicians. Right. Or, you know, mid level A&R guys or uh, or engineers. Right. Like people who uh, weren't making a ton of money but who uh, were making enough to make a living under the previous world no longer could um, because the, the product got devalued, right? I mean, I, I, I quoted the, the uh, Chuck Klosterman book about the rise of Napster and, you know, the, what people, you know, he makes a really good point, which is that what people always say is, well, if I take a loaf of bread from you, you don't have that loaf of bread anymore. If I, or if I steal it from the, from the store, that loaf of bread is gone. But Napster is like, if I can duplicate another piece of bread, what's another loaf of bread, what's wrong with that? Mm. The problem with that is that if you did that infinity times, right? If you just made a new loaf of bread for whoever wanted them, if you were just, you know, if you basically just had a stand where you gave out a loaf of bread to whoever wanted it, and they could come from all over the world seamlessly and sort of get it, which is what downloading is, um, the price and the value of a loaf of bread goes to just about zero, right? Like right. inflation does not simply accrue to capital. It doesn't just accrue to, to money. Inflation happens with goods as well, right? Um, <clears throat> if you did it with, if, or say if you did it with money, right? If I had Napster for my bank account and I have X dollars in there and anyone else can come and download my dollars, but they don't, I don't lose any dollars and they get new ones, right? That sounds great. Except when you realize that that's what inflation is, right? That you're creating, mm-hmm. you're increasing the supply dramatically, which necessarily drives down the value to the point now where, you know, I believe uh, Spotify pays artists something like 0.003 cents a stream, right? Um, and that's the cost. That's the value of, uh, of, uh, of, of, uh, listening to a song now 
And that's, that's what happened with, with Napster. And it's just not really disputable. And people just don't want to sort of grapple with that because they want stuff for free. And they, and they yeah. want to have a sort of clear moral architecture for doing it. Um, it. The thing is, is like the people at the top were fine. Uh, people seem to think like I saw this meme of like, oh, Prince predicted the death of the record companies. But the record companies are still are still fine. Right. Like mm. uh, they just cut costs everywhere, which hurt a lot of people and resulted in a lot of, you know, marginal artists not getting signed anymore. Um, the sort of saddest story is for me. um <clears throat> Uh, Lee Von Helm, who was uh, the drummer and uh, one of the singers uh, for the, the band, um, <clears throat> and for many people was the heart of that uh, of that uh, band, the band. Um, you know, after the band broke up it, it, late in his life, uh, he was earning about $100,000 a year from, from royalties from his music, which is not like super wealthy, but it was enough for him to live on, which is especially important because he had cancer. Um, and then after Napster happened, um, his royalty revenue essentially fell to zero. Um, but he had no ability to tour the way that some people could tour. Uh, he couldn't go and sell vitamin water like fucking, you know, uh, uh, you know, any of the big pop stars like Taylor Swift or whoever. Right. And so he just, you know, was impoverished the last few years of his life and re relied entirely on the generosity of other musicians to sort of fund him while he was dying of cancer. Um, and so it's not, it was not victimless either. Um, now I, I think the argument that makes the most sense from the other side is, um, this stuff might be bad, but it's also inevitable. Uh, <clears throat> which at least, you know, uh, there, there is a degree to which this sort of thing is going to sort of push value down. Um, but look, like, uh, <clears throat> the sort of, the sort of decisions that we make about these funding pathways, uh, and sort of trying to build things that actually work for people, um, make a huge deal in their sort of quality of life, right? Like, I mean, I'm making way more than I ever made before in my life, um, <clears throat> from this and I'm happy about it. And I do so despite the fact that I've refused to move off of my $5 a month price point, um, mostly because I'm uh, not planning on doing this for much longer. Uh, so why raise mm. the price now? Um, but uh, Wait, 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 wait. Hey, why are you... I, I did not know that. Why are you not planning to do this for much longer? Well, I mean, look, it, it just depends. I, you know, there's, there's every reason to think that I could still be doing this in three years because I just haven't been able to replace the income, um, although I am doing more uh, ghostwriting now. I'm, I'm just bored out and I don't... Um, I just think that I've, I've said as much as I sort of need to say, um, mm. it's, it's never hard for me to write and I'll always find stuff, but like, I would just like to turn my attention to other things, uh, especially now that I'm, I'm writing books consistently and I know that I can get a contract. Um, not that that can fund my life, but that, you know, that is like a project that sort of, that sort of consumes me. But anyway, you know, for now, um, you know, I'll still be here you know, it's not going to change any in the immediate future, but yeah, like, I mean, I'm one guy, right? Like, yeah, my sub scalable. <laughs> yeah, my sub stack is very su uh, successful. When you, you know, in a scenario where it has to pay for the lives of two people, me and my partner, right? Like, um, I, I know a lot of people on Substack who have like hired interns and things like that, and that's great. But fundamentally, like the, uh, um, like the the sort of the Maticlacius slow boring enterprise. 
is never going to have like dozens of employees. And so the, the total loss to the industry is significant, even though he himself is making a ton of money. God, yeah, there are so many topics I want to get into, and I, I don't want to chew up all the scenery here, but now I'm interested in this aspect. I detect that you have some frustration with the free press, which of late, which is one of the biggest sub stacks. Um, I don't know if it's the biggest. I know it's one of the biggest uh, run by Barry Weiss, and they have multiple contributors. I've written a couple articles for them, and I've had an eye on them because they do seem like something that could become scalable, that could become the next big media entity that hires a bunch of people and experiences real growth. You've dinged them recently for having fairly a, a narrow message on Israel, I guess it would be one of the things um, in regards to speech. Uh, and I'm wondering, because I'm just, I'm just interpreting you from the outside. You can disabuse me of it. But are you sensing a missed opportunity there from your perspective? And is that one of the reasons why you're making those critiques? I mean, look, like I, I don't have any, uh, I mean, I, I was just published in the free press like three weeks ago or something, right? Like I don't, uh, yeah. three or four weeks ago, I, I don't have any problem with them or with Barry. Um, <clears throat> you know, Barry is a very dedicated Zionist uh, and I very much am not, right? And um, <clears throat> so, it, you know, the my particular, um, <clears throat> unhappiness with their recent work is motivated by just a pretty pure ideological disagreement about a, a very hot button topic. I do think, and this is an issue that's much more uh, pervasive than just the free press, is that you have a ton of people who made their bones being anti-establishment, right? And being really in favor of free speech and like, you know, and are, you know, against cancel culture, et cetera, who are very comfortable with the, you know, the Palestinian exception to free speech, right? That uh, for a very long time, the institutions of American life have been deeply uh, inimical to uh, uh, pro-Palestinian uh, expression. I don't know if people know this, but there, for a long time, there were many establishment news services, for example, would not show bodies of Palestinian casualties in conflicts because they thought that do, doing so uh, was you know, inappropriate given the importance of the Zionist project or whatever. Um, look, you have people rescinding uh, job offers because of the political expressions of uh, college students or law students, right? Um, <clears throat> which is the sort of thing where if a law student uh, signed a letter saying, you know, uh, men are men and women are women, right? Or like an anti-trans thing or whatever. And that person had their their job offer rescinded. I think Barry would run a piece uh, saying that that's cancel culture and it's bad. But it happened to students who criticized Israel, so she doesn't, right? Um, I think if you look at like Reason Magazine, once upon a time, uh, <clears throat> libertarians, you know, there's always been a lot of libertarians that, that are sort of a joke. And I think libertarianism is not really um, an adult political philosophy. But there was a mm -hmm. wing of libertarianism that was very, uh, <clears throat> you know, supportive of uh, critiques of American foreign policy that was deeply um, <clears throat> critical and skeptical of the official American narratives that talked a lot about American war crimes in the uh, third world that criticized America's support of Israel. But now Reason Magazine is just 
because it's one of these conservative publications that just has to go really hard on culture war, um, it doesn't talk any, about any of that shit, right? And you have Robbie Suave, who was just saying, oh, the, you know, the, uh, <clears throat> the American government says that the, the hospital was blown up by the Israeli, by the, uh, by Hamas. So that makes it true, right? Whereas, you know, there was a version of Reason Magazine in the past that would never have accepted the American government's official version of something um, at first glance the way that he's doing, right? But the, the problem is, is like, it's a dicier sort of financial environment for a shop-like reason, right? They can't rely on Koch brother Largesse, Koch brothers Largesse the way that they used to. So they have to be sort of, a, you know, culture war grinding publication. And so, you know, they're sort of, doing what so many other people are doing, which is like being these fierce anti-establishment types by supporting the establishment, right? Like it's, it's mm. really absurd when you look at the fact that like, you know, Barry Weiss is joined by Alex Jones in support for Israel, right? She's joined by uh, <clears throat> Steve Bannon in support for Israel, uh, who, you know, arguably did more to, to normalize anti-Semitism in American politics than anybody else in the last decade. Uh, but she's also joined by the Republican Party writ large, right, particularly congressional Republicans. But he's all, she's also joined by Demo the Democratic Party writ large, particularly the Biden administration. And she's joined by the State Department and the Department of Defense and almost all of the major institutions in American life. Right. Like the reason why you've read so many uh, pieces about these college students is because they have no one else to go after. Right. Like, the, mm. like the, they're they're obsessing over some dopey college students because they know that they can't look anywhere else to make themselves out to be an underdog. And this is, I think, hypocritical for anyone. But it's especially ridiculous for this anti-establishment movement, like the intellectual dark web, Jordan Peterson, diehard supporter of of Israel, in which he is in lockstep with the Democratic Party, among other people, right? It's a completely false narrative of anti-establishment attitudes that people who are in the anti-establishment world don't know what to do with because they're supporting the man. So that's a really interesting observation, because I found myself disagreeing with some aspects of the Israel piece you wrote, but I do agree that it is very important to the supporters to present themselves as the underdog in the conflict, which the older I get, honestly, just does less for me. Like whether or not you're the underdog, that doesn't have much bearing on whether you are correct in a dispute. If there's a crazy person demanding that he must be able to live in a rich man's house, I don't go, well, I mean, obviously you're the underdog. So therefore I am compelled by your argument. And yet there's just something about human psychology where you've got both sides with these competing claims of being the underdog. Now, I would probably be a little bit more tilted towards yeah, saying that it's a bit more confounded than what you would present. What you're saying is true. Like the American establishment is, you know, right now backing Israel. But then again, Israel has an underdog claim, perhaps because it's surrounded by enemies and, you know, the entire uh, Muslim world effectively and, you know, whatever, whatever. It's just interesting to me how important that is. And to your frustration that you express sometimes, I do share that people won't just go, 
I like this thing and therefore I support it. That <laughs> they yeah. have to give you all these sorts of reasons. And, you know, last on the list of reasons is sometimes I feel some cultural affinity for this place and therefore I'm on their side. Therefore, therefore. And you just, that, that almost comes last in the arguing often. Yeah. I mean, look, I, for the specific question of why it matters for Israel about who's the underdog, like setting everything else aside, um, it is core to, pro-Israel propaganda that they are the underdog. And that's necessary uh, to continue to fund them to the degree that we do. Uh, so we, you know, give them three plus billion dollars a year, like pro forma, setting aside any other kind of aid, um, <clears throat> which, you know, we're going to see a lot of following this Hamas attack. Um, we give them uh, <clears throat> unprecedented interoperability with our military and our intelligence services. Right. There's, there's no, not, not, not the British, not the Canadians, nobody else gets access to the American defense system, uh, gets plugged into our system in the way that the IDF does and the way that Israel does. Uh, you know, we fund their missile shield, etc. Uh, we give them unprecedented uh, diplomatic cover. There's no country in the world that enjoys anything like the sort of diplomatic largesse of the American government, the way that uh, that Israel does, um, you know, we, we use our veto power on the Security Council of the UN uh, to make even mild, uh, make it impossible to pass even mild resolutions in favor of Palestinian rights. Um, and this is important because, like, if you want to keep the cash spigot on, you have to convince people that Israel is teetering on the brink, right? Um, but Israel is not teetering on the brink. Israel is one of the most technologically advanced societies in the world. They have one of the most powerful militaries in the world. They have the best espionage and intelligence system in the world. Uh, they have a, a powerful and healthy economy. Uh, you know, th they are the dominant power in the Levant, and it's not particularly close. Um, and again, like this is important because a lot of people want to set Israel up to be like, the last bulwark against the brown hordes who are, you know, going to pour over the border and kill everybody, right? Like there's a, there's a, uh, <clears throat> a narrative sort of built in sort of with that. But again, like my media critique is simply that, you know, the free press, but also the sort of wing of media that it represents positions itself as an anti-establishment, right? A sort of uh, organization um, just like Reason does and just like Jordan Peterson does and just like all these people who sort of are these sort of truth tellers who defy consensus and uh, who, you know, fight against the dominant narrative, but they, they are the dominant narrative, right? And there's a refusal in these sort of places to sort of look at themselves and say, well, in this instance, I actually am the man. I'm not against mm -hmm. the man. I am the man. Uh, I am arguing for the consensus position. Uh, and maybe that should inform the way that I talk about it. Yeah. I mean, you could say, I think the man is correct in this instance, if that's how you feel, you know, just because everybody agrees on something, everybody of power doesn't make it wrong. There have been some famous instances where, yes, it was wrong um, and they have been a negative indicator. But if everybody says the sky is blue, um, that doesn't make the sky a different color. I mean, I don't know. I might be giving some of the people who might have opted for a candy bar, a sardine by giving my my Israel takes. But I feel like my brain is screwed up or different from other people sometimes because 
uh, I don't view them as the underdog. Some of the things you listed about them of the technological advancement um, and the success of their society leads me to have more affinity for them, but also want to support them less just because it's like, a, you know, training wheels off the bike. You know, it's I, I don't I don't really see the advantage to this country. So I'm like more sympathetic to them than a lot of their um, than a lot of their critics or even maybe the median person. But at the same time, I have less of an impulse to rubber stamp a ton of money coming from our taxpayers toward their concern. But, you know, we will shift. We will move. Um, mimetic collapse, Freddie. I am fascinated. I'm fascinated by mimesis. I love some of the things Luke Burgess has wrote, written about it, about Gerard and everything else. And I'm especially interested in this recent piece of yours, Mimetic Collapse, Our Destiny. And I, okay, I'll just put it out, out here right now. Why the hell is poor David Foster Wallace, who died, when did he die? It seems like a long time ago, it was in the Bush administration. Mm -hmm. Why is he still a boogeyman of prestige publications to the point where, as you were referencing, Rolling Stone is writing about scorning the type of people who talk about liking him? What the hell is going on here, and what does it have to do with mimesis? Yeah, I mean, so <clears throat> there's a sort of very mid-2000s critique or late-2000s critique of something people call a lit bro, uh, <clears throat> which is sort of inherently contradictory anyway. I mean, uh, one of the most absurd things about this whole concept is that, like, bros don't fucking read, man, right? Like, go to mm -hmm. Kaisai at Auburn University and ask the brothers there about, you know, David Foster Wallace. They look at you like you have two heads, right? Like the, the mm -hmm. bros don't read. It, it's very strange. As I say in that piece that you're referencing, um, very few people read, seriously. So, uh, I mean, it depends on what you look at, but there are some, some estimates that say that the median American reads one book a year, okay? Um, men read significantly less than women. Uh, men especially read less fiction than women. Um, and, you know, thousand-page experimentalist novels are not the kind of fiction that most people read. Right? Like, most dudes that read are reading Lord of the Rings, right? Like, there's, you know... And so, like, the portion of the population that is a young man that reads uh, Infinite Chest or whatever else, or Bukowski or... You know, whoever else gets shoved into this vague category is just so tiny, right? That it was never possible for it to actually be a uh, like a very common uh, archetype that you would actually encounter out in the world. But it became very popular uh, in like the you know late two thousands to complain about the lip rub. Um and you know transparently in my view because. Um, <clears throat> People complaining and making fun of the concept of the lip bro made them popular, right? Like, mm -hmm. it, you know, it was just a thing that people did that made you seem funny and cool and cultured and smart. And so people wanted to do that. And so you ended up with this critique of a kind of person that was incredibly rare when there was vastly more people complaining about the lip bro than there could possibly be lip bros, right? And like, this is mimesis, right? This is, I've seen this person over here. She tweeted about the lip bro and it got a lot of likes and people thought she was funny. 
I want to look funny too. I'm going to do that too. Even though this, this person, this invented person has no actual expression in my own life at all. Um, <clears throat> but that's like at least a first order mimesis, right? That's at least yeah. like I'm living among people who claim to know this person. And mm-hmm. maybe, maybe if you lived in fucking Bushwick, uh, in 2007, you know, you knew a couple guys who were like this. Yeah. Can I just interject? It's surreal yeah. to me because I remember in high school, my mom actually, because my mom's the librarian, she gave me a copy of Consider the Lobster mm-hmm. and said, hey, I think you might like this. And I did. I quite, quite loved it. I had nobody to discuss this with. I, I didn't know anybody who wanted to talk about it when I was in high school. And frankly, I didn't know anybody who wanted to talk about it when I was in college. Maybe if I had gone to, I don't know, Amherst, I might have found a, a few people. It's this bizarre retconning that you're talking about, this popularizer of this this hate figure who has never who has never been. I'm 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 just stunned that it's that, that that it could be so successful to create this cultural meme in the absence of the thing it's even reacting to. Yeah, I mean, look, like so, Dana Schwartz is the writer who's probably most responsible for all this. Um, she's the creator of the guy from your MFA Twitter account, which, okay. Like, I mean, some people find that very funny, but, um, I mean, she get she gave an interview and she said like, oh, I was in my English classes in Brown and, uh, you know, at Brown university and, uh, there were guys that annoyed me like this. And so she began a side career for five years as like this pretend portraying this archetype She got a book deal out of it. Um, If you think about that scenario, like number one, to not understand that the English department at Brown University is not like most of the world is pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. But also even then, like it could have literally been like two guys, right? Like it it could have been like two or three guys that she had a couple classes with that annoyed her. And then she creates this archetype which sort of bubbles around, you know? But at least, you know, she's like you know, an, el- an elder millennial, right? In other words, like she is in like the, the correct sort of generation for this to make sense. What that Rolling Stone piece is about is about um, Gen Z people on TikTok, like teenagers crazy. doing the lit pro thing. And it's like, I'm sorry, but no, as an adolescent in Gen Z in 2023, you are not going to cocktail parties and meeting the lit pro. That is not Mm -hmm. happening. There are no lit pros in your fucking sophomore English class. All right. Like that's just, it's just not occurring. It's just based on nothing. Um, And it's just so absurd to me. Look, go look at the polling and the research about how much Gen Z reads, right? No, and again, it's I, all they're all women are the ones who do, right? Um, I, I, but but yeah, so this yeah. is what this is what I'm saying is like this is now like a, 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 this a meme. It's you have a meme that is like from a generation previous, but these young women apparently sort of see that and say, oh, this is a funny thing that people sort of base their personalities around in the past. I'll, I'll do this on TikTok. And all I need to do is pretend that I'm annoyed by guys I have never met in my life. And this is, this is what I mean by mimetic collapse. And yeah, you, you mentioned Luke Burgess, who 
I hadn't even really realized it uh, before I published the piece, but uh, <clears throat> uh, he's done a lot of work about this. Uh, you should check him out. Uh, <clears throat> like, mimetic collapse is when you have so many copies of copies that um, <clears throat> no one remembers what the original was, but they're just going through the motions and playing the hits because that's yeah. just what people do. And that's what teenagers doing the Lipro thing on TikTok is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have this paragraph that you've written about it that I thought was so well done. If you don't mind me reading your work, Freddie, um, what 20 year old has ever been in a cultural and discursive space where pompous young men who love spins wheel Charles Bukowski are using that fact as a means to establish a position in the social hierarchy. How many 20 year olds have the slightest idea who Charles Bukowski is? All of this amounts to frustration over an out-of-date literary culture that's as relevant to young people as Facebook. Yet the animosity towards this type of theoretical person still exists because other people have expressed animosity towards him, and those are <laughs> and those who are aping that animosity want to perform a certain vision of cultured adulthood. It really does all dovetail, Freddie, to the conversations we've been having the podcast, it does speak to a stuck culture. Mm -hmm. um, and that, again, I'm just sort of, my mind is blown that this persists, but I, I resent it because I, I, I resent what happens a lot of times in our media culture where we're almost presented with a hate figure as though we all know to hate the person. And I often feel it as though it's totally astroturfed. It's not even real. This happened. It often happens with like a racial tinge. I mean, this has a racial tinge of like the white lip bro. I felt like that <clears throat> with the, the whole Karen trope where all of a sudden everybody was knowingly talking about, oh, you know, white women who come barging into a situation and forcing rules and, you know, enforcing rules on minorities. And I'm just I was like thinking, is this really a thing or are we all just afraid to disagree that it's a thing. And so now this is the greatest evil in our society that we need to, we need to stamp out is, I mean, officious white women who are middle-aged and this is what everybody's talking about. And these things happen where it's this mimetic straw man, this mimetic hate figure that not only seems to be oftentimes rootless or perhaps not exactly founded in a large sample, Mm -hmm. But it's almost like so so many people are afraid of calling bullshit and questioning it that it just gains steam. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, as you know, many other people have said, uh, Karen, you know, is just one of those things where y you can say very misogynist things in the oh, 2020s. If you just say white <laughs> women, right? Yes. Like, I, I, if I go on if I go on Twitter and I say uh, women. Uh, are women irrational. are so entitled. They're if I so say entitled, women are entitled, Freddy. women are irrational, like people will be like, you, you misogynist. If I say white women, they'll be like, yes, go off, King. Yes, you know. <laughs> um, but look, um, there's this concept. I can't think of what the term has been used for it is, and it's it's bothering me. But um, it's something like 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 efficiency culture or something where there's this sense that many many things are becoming more and more alike as we have created the opportunity for more and more data about pe what people respond to, right? So, you know, an obvious uh, example of this is in like website design, particularly websites that have some sort of 
advertisement or affiliate link or that are selling things specifically or directly, um, <clears throat> you might open up a page and get a version of that page. And then your buddy who's at a different IPA, uh, IP uh, uh, address, excuse me, uh, might open it and get a slightly different version of the page, right? And that the the software that's that's doing this will record if you are more likely to click on that version of the page, right? In other words, they they it's just straight A B testing. They just look at over many thousands of people looking at the page, you know, which layout is more likely to get you to click the ad or to play the video or to purchase the thing, right? And so and, and o- over time, they use this to sort of refine everything to like become as attractive to other people as possible in terms of what they want to click on or do. There's a, there's a, a notion that this is actually like spreading throughout our culture and our economy. So if you look at cars, for example, if you take two cars that are in the same class and around the same price point, right? Um, the argument is that they drive dramatically more similar now than they did decades ago. So that if you were driving a, a let's say, a, a Honda Civic and a Toyota Corolla in 1995, they would have distinct driving dimensions so that you would be able to tell one car was different from the other, even though these aren't like super you know, high-end performance cars. Um, they would have sort of distinct driving dimensions. Um, and then you can go up the list and sort of do that. Then you can do like the Honda Accord and the Toyota Camry, et cetera. Um, the argument is that, um, and you, you see, you hear this a lot from sort of veteran car reviewers, that cars are just getting more and more and more the same in terms of how they feel, mm-hmm. how they function, their systems, et cetera. And that the reason for this is, um, the automakers, uh, pay a lot of money and pay a lot of attention and put a lot of time into, um, sort of optimizing, uh, the, uh, yeah, refinement culture sounds right. Or, or optimization culture. They, I put, I put refinement culture in the chat so people know, yeah. but yes, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the idea is that like cars just drive a lot more the same than they used to. And the reason why is car companies have a ton of data now that they, that they harvest about what people like, what people complain about, what people are likely to review well, what seems to go well when they do go for a test drive, et cetera. Uh, and that what happens inevitably with that is most people like more or less the same things. So Honda and Toyota, as two distinct car companies, are getting the same, just about the same feedback from people. And so they end up producing similar products, right? Um, <clears throat> I think that you can, and, and there's people who sort of apply this to all sorts of different things. Um, people have talked about this in terms of the NBA, right? Like um, the, the demise of like distinct playing styles in the NBA. Where yeah. like you, I mean, you had like the grit and grind Memphis Grizzlies era, right? Which was really distinct. Um, but eventually, the Grizzlies just became like everybody else, and were shooting threes or uh, or drawing fouls, right? Like that. That like everybody's shot chart became the same. And, like you can actually yeah. look at this like like quantitatively, and so that, like the degree to which NBA teams are producing similar uh, shot charts uh, is dramatically higher than it was uh, 15, 20 years ago. Uh, and that this is a product of the analytics departments come to the same conclusions and they urge the teams to play the same way. And that this is, this is a system wide, like this is in our culture in, in more and more and more ways. Another example is, um, you know, we still somehow have like a cultural war about like Android versus iPhone, but that, um, over time, 
they've become more and more similar to the degree to which like the actual lived experience of using one versus the other in the, the ways that actually matter are so minimal, right? That you have to have, if you're Apple, like they are obsessively advertising about the titanium case on the new iPhone, which is going to mean nothing to 90% of the people who buy one, but which they need to find something to differentiate themselves. And I think that this is also happening to people is my, uh, is, is my uh, <laughs> well, depressing, depressing conclusion, right? Like they're, they're looking out at the way people perform themselves online. They're seeing mm. what is related and they are aping that in a desire to be liked too. <clears throat> yeah. And sometimes in these micro communities, that's signaling that you're the type of person who hates you or the type of person who hates me. And then we're left with this odd puzzle when we are confronted with it of, is this the type of person who hates me because of what I've said or is this the type of person who hates me because within this community, it's fashionable to hate me because somebody started hating me and nobody ever really got to the bottom of why or how. And I guess what I would ask you is this, what you were describing makes complete sense, but at some point it shifted. At some point in the culture, it became more important to signal that you hated Nickelback than the signal that you liked Radiohead. Mm -hmm. At some point, it became a more important broadcast of what you hate versus what you like. When I think of your critiques of the cultural left, I feel like they don't like anything anymore. Just broadly speaking, maybe intellectuals from the 60s or 70s, but as far as who right now, like Ta-Nehisi Ta Coates was the hot writer years ago, and he was being praised and... A.O. Scott was saying that whatever he was saying was necessary like water or air. He exits the scene to France. I feel as though there's just there, there's nobody in that milieu who is liked. What do you make of that? But I, it, I mean, I think here's the paradox, right? I think what you're saying is true. The, the way that I've described it before is at some point, the fundamental human complaint went from why do bad things happen to good people and became why do good things happen to bad people, right? This is mm. a very fundamental reorientation. I think that what you're saying has a lot of truth to it, but at the same time, right, you have stan culture, which is I will fucking kill you if you criticize BTS, right? Like it's, it's <laughs> I just am the shit that I like. It's uh, I cannot, you know, exist comfortably in the, a world in which people disagree with me about art and media. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it also this, this notion, you know, people, there's just, people don't produce negative criticism anymore a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like you have like the, the sort of, there's been a well-documented decline in the number right. and intensity of negative reviews about everything. This is most intense in music where you can read a lot of publications and just not find anything that they give like on a 10 point scale, everything's at least a seven, right? And in fact, there's one thing that I've observed and which other people have observed uh, in the K-pop community is like K-pop albums are not reviewed negatively. Like I, I, you know, I would say to everyone listening to this, I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> Go find a publication uh, <clears throat> that has more than, you know, a thousand readers. Find anything that's a, a, at all like a mainstream uh, publication with an audience and search for negative reviews of K-pop albums. You will not find it. It is, is truly genuinely very difficult. And K-pop fans have noticed this and complained about it because what they understand intuitively, right, is that that's not respect. 
But you have this whole, there's a whole sort of wing of argument about art right now that comes from places like Tumblr that says, um, you shouldn't ever have negative criticism. You should praise what you like and say nothing about what you don't. Right. Which mm. of course, if there is no, if there is no negative response then the positive response doesn't mean anything. The thing is, is like, I think that this can actually live alongside what you're complaining about. Right. Like yeah. that, that there's hater culture and there's a miserableism, right? I think widespread miserableism about everything. But there's also like, uh, you know, I'll slit my wrists if you don't say <laughs> you love Olivia R Rodrigo, you know? <laughs> it's somehow it does. It almost seems like some things that are mainstream approved, uh, stamped institutionally, uh, the media properties surrounding those things have a strong disincentive to criticize. And so they're handled with kid gloves, but then in the world of ideas and people below that tier, nothing is good. Nobody's a fan of anything. To be a fan of something that's a bit niche, as you've pointed out, is suspicious. That sounds like a pretentious person who would do such a thing, and they must be mocked as some form of bro. Somehow it all happens simultaneously and is unsatisfying for everybody. So that's uh, that that's wonderful. Uh, let's let let's close out on sports. This is what I love about you. I love just the idea that a lot of your readers are probably sometimes thinking Freddie's probably having deep thoughts right now about the left or about education or about politics. And I'll sometimes think right now he is he is commenting and arguing with some of my subscribers about Josh Allen. And I love that. I love mm. that you retain this enthusiasm for sports. And we'll get into some of your laments, but I just want to I, I, I just want to know why, you know, you, you don't have the profile out, outwardly of somebody who would be as committed a sports fan as you are. So do you think it's valuable or do you just think it's something you like? I mean, it's, I, you know, I have fun with NFL football, which is the only thing I really follow anymore. I will uh, start watching the NBA season like like the last 10 games of a season just to get up to speed with who's good and, you know, um, uh, and watch the play in tournament games and then watch the playoffs. But I just I don't I don't have it in me to do a regular season NBA anymore. Um, yeah. I just Even a lot of know, people, I, you know. <laughs> Uh, I, uh, I, look, I is asking, are you going to watch the in season tournament that the, NBA I will not No, I mean, look, like I, <laughs> the, 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 league needs to cut the season by 10 games, right? Every, everybody knows that, that 82 is too many games. You can't blame the players for, uh, not playing very many games and doing load management or for not going particularly hard in some games because it's, you know, playing 82 games, uh, with how big and strong and explosive their bodies are is just not the same as it might have been whenever the 82-game schedule was started. The league isn't going to do that. And it's just like, um, I just hate watching a game knowing it means nothing. I mean, I mean yeah. it, it seems like most of these teams don't even really care about seeding anymore, right? Like, I think I think the, the Denver Nuggets, like, if you said, you know, you have to pay, play 10% harder and you can have the one seed or 10% uh, less hard and you can be the four seed. I think they'll take the four seed, right? Like, yeah. um, which is a, which is a rational calculation on their part. Right. But what it, it makes for me is, is like, I just don't care that much right now. So um, yeah. look like I, I'm a red blooded American, like male, like anybody else. Um, <laughs> I like, I've been in the same fantasy football league 
uh, for like pretty much my entire life. League was started in 1992 when I was nine years old. Um, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, and that sort of sort of kept me in the game when it wasn't that interesting. Uh, I love NBA, I love NFL football. Uh, I don't do baseball at all anymore. Um, uh, I, I was a, a college basketball fan because I'm from Connecticut and then greed, football greed killed the big East. And I was very happily said, uh, you know, f- farewell to college basketball. And I haven't looked back at that. Um, yeah, I, I liked, I liked the NFL. I, um, I think the league is sort of structurally broken too. Like the NFL mm. is the most exciting. It's got a, a you, you can't say that the regular season doesn't matter. Right. Which is, which is cool. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who's a big 49ers fan and a couple of weeks ago he was flying high and he was telling me that it looks <laughs> like a, a dominant uh, team and on Rich Eisen's uh, NFL show, <clears throat> they were discussing the possibility of an undefeated season. Right. But what mm. I said to my fan was uh, to my friend was like, you know, the problem is, is you don't want to be the best team in October. Right. Um, it's just the season that, you know, you can break the seasons up into however small pieces as you want. And the teams are just very different teams. Right. Like um, injuries happen so often and they are so consequential. Uh, a team will look like a dominant force and their right guard will go down in the last game of the season and it'll fuck them for the playoffs. Right. And I just don't, these guys, these are, these are enormous humans who are impossibly strong and incredibly fast and they're running at each other for now 17 games, which is insane to me that they added games. Um, And it's hard to get invested knowing that uh, someone getting hurt is going to have a huge outcome on who the champion is, right? Yeah, but that gives football its juice, though. The the, mm-hmm. the feeling of danger, the sense of... Uh, I wrote about this a little bit in the free press piece I wrote that it's terrible that Brock Purdy drops back in the playoffs last year and he just gets absolutely blindside crunched as he's throwing and the game is over, the season is over, everything is over, but that also gives football its juice that the tight end misses a block and you're not just sacrificing a play as you would be in basketball if you screw up a possession, but the season is over and there is a real real bond and foxhole performance there that that exists as distressing and depressing and aggravating as it all can be. Now, we... Before we started recording, Anthony Mays and I, right now we are we are bleeding red and gold. We have the capacity to bleed both somehow. It's it's like being double jointed. We were riding high with the Niners season. They have lost two in a row. And we were remarking upon how the margins for the what causes the reaction are so thin. Like Kirk Cousins right now is uh, obviously a guy you should trade a bunch of draft picks for. And he was just like a little bit of a finger length away from throwing two picks at the half before turning in a great performance overall. And if the cornerback had picked the ball that was between the hands, then maybe we have a totally different narrative about him for the rest of the week. You express frustration with that. I love it. I love that it swings so irrationally. But you said that you were frustrated and that was a little bit of a personal tease. What, what are you frustrated about in regards to that? Well, I mean, look, like the whole thing, it is, it's not natural to have a sport with, with the sort of layout of football where you play a 60 minute game 
And then it's a week of commentary about that. So you have a combination of the NFL being the biggest sport by far. And so having more commentary than anything else, an insane number of shows and podcasts and articles and whatever. Um, so there's just people always talking about stuff all the time. Um, but you, you also have this big, long layoff that they have to fill, right? Like typically a week between a, a, a team's two, a, two of a team's games. Um, and so everything gets beaten to death. And so if your team has a really shitty game, if they really suck, they look bad, you have to sit there and he- listen to how bad they are for a week from every corner and every direction constantly, right? Yeah. Um, even though we know that, you know, minor things can swing a game. But the other thing is, like, when you have so much analysis, right, um, anyone can sort of bend the narrative wherever they want it to go, right? So you said I was arguing about Josh Allen in your comments. Uh, you're, you know, you, you, you have Nick Wright on sometimes. He kills Josh Allen all the time on his show. Um, yeah. Last year, a lot of people said Josh Allen had this, you know, terribly disappointing season. In the advanced stats, he was the second best quarterback in the league, right? I mean, mm-hmm. everybody was was way below Mahomes because he's easily the best player in the league, right? But Josh Allen was second in the league in QBR, right? If it, right now, <clears throat> people are saying he's having this terrible season. Look at his numbers. He's not doing badly, right? He's he's third in the league in QBR. You know, he he's I think he might still be left be first in the league in completion percentage. Um, but like there's so much data and so much noise and so many people are talking that you can always have these narratives. And so I was not a, a Brock Purdy believer before the last two games, but also the last two games didn't change my mind as much as they changed some people's, you know. I mean the the, yeah. the fundamental problem for Brock Purdy is I think people need to ask themselves, why did he fall in the draft, right? Why was he the last pick in the draft? He won a ton in college. He can uh, read a defense. Uh, He's certainly not big by NFL standards, but he's not um, as small. He's not like, he's not like, you know, a, a Bryce Young style, like this too small. Like he's big enough to be an NFL starter. Um, why, you know, he's accurate. Why did he fall? The reason he fell is because he probably has the worst arm talent in the league, right? Like, he, I mean, he certainly has bottom five uh, arm talent. And there's many uh, backups who have better arm talent than he does. Playing within Kyle Shanahan's system and almost always being ahead because you've got, you know, the, the best roster in football, in my opinion, um, <clears throat> that doesn't get exposed very often. But when he's in a situation like he is last night where he's trying to to win a game and come from behind, right? At, at the NFL level, like at some point, you know, he's going to have to go on the road to Philadelphia or Detroit or somewhere at some point probably. And he's going to have to bring the team back uh, from down 10 points or whatever in the playoffs So at some point in his career. And I don't know if he can put footballs into the windows that he needs to to be able to do that, right? But like you'd want that, like that—that's an opinion that I generated over now. You know, I don't know how how many games that he started, like sixteen games or whatever he started. Um, The problem is, is what's rewarded in the NFL media is whatever the hot take is that you just came up with in the last thirty seconds. And to what you're saying, you can get creative with it. If I want to be in denial of Josh Allen, 
I can say, yeah, those stats sound great. QBR sounds great. But if he's lowering his shoulder on those runs time after time, that's eventually going to catch up with him. And he's not going to go deep in the playoffs and he's not going to win a championship. I don't even know if I believe that. I'm like half married to that take. But you can really, unless you're talking about Patrick Mahomes, when it's a quarterback, you can really go anywhere with it. There's something to the flexibility of quarterbacks and takes where if you name me a quarterback, I can give you a reason for why they will not ultimately prevail in a way that you don't really see in the NBA with NBA superstars. Sometimes they're called a choker or they should do this or they should do that. But everybody effectively operates under the presumption that if they are flanked with enough talent, they'll win the championship. Um, But in the NFL with quarterbacks, yeah, there is so much information at your disposal that almost any take is possible. Yeah. But I mean, it's also, I don't know. Um, I, I could, I could, he's only six games into his career. I guess I I could end up regretting this, but like Bryce Young really looks like, you know, that was not the move. Right. And it's, and with the benefit of hindsight, right. You say, okay, um, this guy played for the powerhouse program. Uh, so he had everything lined up for his success. He knew, and almost every game, his, Offensive line is going to blow huge holes for him and, and, and keep defenders out of the backfield. Uh, he had inc- insanely talented wide receivers, whatever. And you look at Bryce Young and you say, okay, like, I don't care that he's losing right now. And I don't even care that his stats are bad. The question with him is like, what does, like, what is ever going to be exceptional about Bryce Young? Right. Like, what, what, mm. what when you look at him, what is the trait that he has that is, Something that you can say, that's what he's always going to be able to lean on. He's not. Uh, uh, the thing is, like, okay, we know he's, he's, he's undersized, right? And that's been discussed to death. I think you can, you can overcome that, but he's also got minus arm talent, and he's not a great athlete, right? He's, he's not yeah. a great rusher. He's not a, he's not a great scrambler. And it's like, why, you know, it's just it's, with the benefit of hindsight, you're like, wait, what would you have picked for him to be the guy in a draft with Anthony Richardson and CJ Stroud intangibles. I, I, I don't know. I, yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good point. And sometimes you got to get creative when it doesn't like, why isn't Justin Herbert really finding all the success? He has everything on paper that you would ever want. The guy is also, I mean, if I'm looking for an NFL player who might be the lit bro who read some David Foster Wallace, it would be Herbert. Not only is he six foot six with a, Canon. Uh, when I was watching him in interviews, I was I was very impressed. I mean, he's he just seems he seems very smart, and somehow you've got to reverse engineer why they're not having the success they want to have. And there's probably some prosaic reason that doesn't have a whole lot to do with him. But quarterbacks are what sports talk right now this time of year is anchored around, and right. it's distortive. Well, I mean, but like, like, look at like, you know, offensive coordinators and things. So like to get back to Josh Allen, um, we know that Josh Allen can play quarterback as well as it can be played. Cause we've seen games like his playoff game against the chiefs a couple seasons ago, which is as, as good as the, as yeah. the position of quarterback can be played. Um, his, the, the season opener uh, last year against the Rams is as good as quarterback can be played. Um, why isn't he getting back there? Um, you know, he lost Brian Dayball, who was his the offensive coordinator who sort of shepherded him into the next level. And it's just like there's just so many hands involved in NFL success. Um, 
I think, you know, Herbert's got the Chargers curse on him, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, the good thing for Herbert is he's in LA and nobody gives a shit about his team. So he doesn't get a lot of pressure. Like if, if, yeah. if, if Herbert played for the New York Giants, uh, they would have been calling for his blood uh, a long time mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. Um, the Chargers curse, the deserved curse, I would say, is somebody who grew up in San Diego. And I think it's a travesty uh, that they move the team to a city that just overtly does not need them at all. Um, but that's another topic for another day. Freddie, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, do you have anything to plug for us upcoming well, in addition to your book, of course, uh, that that's got to be out there. But is there anything else? No. Yeah. Go check out my new book, uh, How Elites Get the Social Justice Movement, available wherever books are sold. Uh, and you can find me on uh, my Substack at freddydebord.substack.com. You've been doing a great job with it. Hey, you can quit whenever you want to quit. I don't want to put any undue pressure on you, but I will I will be sad when it happens. And I, I hope you retain the fuel to just keep going because it's been fantastic work and I greatly appreciate it. So thank you so much. Thank you, brother. 